there's a an interesting story that, that you see that pops up from time to time, and it's a, a picture of a traveler that's waiting for an airplane, sitting in the midst of of the the typical rows of chairs in the airport, and just happens to be positioned very 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 much next to a, a, another person very close to them because there is not a ton of space and you know they're trying to fill the airplanes to capacity and she had been to the gift shop on her way to the to the gate and, and she had purchased a package of cookies and she sits down and before too long she notices the gentleman that's sitting next to her is eating a cookie open package cookie is present package is open and she's kind of like well that's rude and so she reaches down into the bag and grabs a cookie kind of as, you know, to say, hey, what are you doing? And eats a cookie, and he looks down, and he grabs another cookie, and they do this back and forth until the cookies are almost all gone, and he reaches in and grabs the last one. She looks at him, and she was angry. He snaps it in half, and he hands her half of the last cookie, and then he eats the other half. Then they call for the boarding of the plane, and he gets up and gathers his items. She reaches down to gather her items and finds her package of cookies that she had not yet opened in her things. And the picture here is, is that sometimes we think one thing is true, but it's not. And we are only later embarrassed because we realize the mistake we've made. This morning we're going to look at a passage in Scripture where it would be easy for us to take one impression of a person and do wrongly with it. So if you want to turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 9 and look to verse number 10, we're going to pick up right about where we left off a couple of weeks ago when Saul had this blinding light and these words of Jesus to invite him to do more with his life. And as a result, we see this picture here of something different. So when you get to Acts chapter 9 and you find verse number 10, if you would stand in honor of God's word. Acts chapter 9, verse number 10, reads like this. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. 
Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews and dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that when we come to Scripture, we are radically challenged, that our perception of the world around us and the people around us is oftentimes pushed, and it is challenged for us to see people for how you see them, to look into the heart, to look beyond what their life has been, to look at what their life can be and will be. I pray that this morning that we would become the people who look not at what somebody has been, but at what somebody could be. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the most powerful things that you find in this passage is, is just this overwhelming sensation that most of us would have a very hard time if we knew the history of an individual like this. You know, there's, there's a measure in understanding the context of somebody, right? And we live in a relatively small community. And people know each other, don't they? People see the lives that people live and they understand the things about their history. But isn't it amazing when somebody changes because they've come to know Jesus and their life is altered? You know, what's really neat as a pastor is when I hear somebody say, man, before they got saved, they were a mess. But now that they know Jesus, look at their life. You know, as a pastor, when I hear those kinds of things, I get excited because I know there's still hope for each and every one of us in the capacity that God can do a great big thing in spite of what we have been or who we have been. Well, let's look to the scripture here as we, as we see it unfolding. Verse number 10 again, it says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And I, I always like to point this out, and I pointed this out, you know, some months ago, when you look at 1 Samuel, you'll see, isn't it really cool that, that God knows the names of the individual people he's calling into these specific roles, and there's this really cool picture here. And point number one, if you're going to follow along in your, and take notes in your bulletin, is the Lord knows who you are and where you are. You know, I don't know if you think that you're outside of what God can see when you're home alone or when you're, you're at work or when you're driving to and from. You know, sometimes we need a little bit of solace, don't we? And we think we can get away from everybody, right? But we can never escape God. He can see us. And there's a moment when he leans in and he calls Ananias by name and he says, Ananias, and that's all he says. And as in the thematically, as we've been talking about this picture, there's something that I want you to continue to, to think about and remember that there's something for each of us to ask God each and every day. And that is not, God, what are you going to do about this? But we look to heaven and we say, my king, what would you have me do today? And as we learn this, this, this kind of expression of what we're supposed to be accomplishing for God, we hear in the next very line this beautiful, beautiful retort from Ananias. He says, here I am, Lord. Because Ananias knows that Jesus is in charge. Do you know that this morning, that Jesus is in charge? Well, some of you know. Now, do you really know that Jesus is in charge? 
I mean, isn't it cool when you get to the garden scene when they're coming to arrest him and he says that he's Jesus, that they fall down backwards, and you're like, aren't the guys with the swords and the, and the, the shackles, aren't they supposed to be tough and strong? Well, Jesus is in charge. We get to verse number 11, it says, So the Lord said to him, and he gives some beautiful instruction here, right? Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And it's like, not only does Jesus know Ananias, but Jesus knows apparently who's praying and where they're praying at. And he tells them right where to go. He says, go right to this house on this street. Yeah, point number two is, is the Lord gives clear instruction when we listen. Ananias says, here I am, Lord. And the Lord says, listen carefully. And he gives him this beautiful understanding of, of where Saul is. And he goes on to say in verse number 12, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. See, God is preparing Ananias to go do a thing, but he's already been working on Saul. Yeah, one of the really neat things in, in my experience is that oftentimes we are terrified to share our faith with other people because we think that we're going to walk into the situation cold and that they're not thinking about it at all. You know, I've told you the story of how when I was young that, that my own siblings, they were really excited about church and my older brother and my older sister, they would go to church and they would invite me and then I got, you know, as a teenager kind of mindset, I'd be like, I don't know, I don't want to go. I don't want to go, I don't want to. And then I got a job and so then I got work and so then I couldn't go, right? And then one day I'm like, man, I sure miss that they asked me to go to church. And I, I remember saying to my sister, I said to her, I said, why don't you invite me to go to church anymore? And she goes, well, I didn't think you wanted to go. And then she said, do you want to go to church? And I was like, yes. Because God had been working in my life where I began to realize that I needed to go. And there's this thing where we realize that God had been working on me quietly, even though I'd been saying no all that time. Ananias is looking into the situation, and, and God is telling him, that he's been working on Saul. Isn't it exciting to know that God could be sending you to somebody that God's already been working on? But the doubt comes up. Verse 13. Read it with me. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, whom, or how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, here he has authority from the chief priest, to bind all who call on your name. And he says, I know that this is a bad dude, that this guy, he does bad things to people who believe, and he has the authority to do more bad things. But the Lord said what he said, didn't he? There's a breakover moment, a crisis that each and every one of us has to face, and that's when we look at somebody that desperately needs Jesus, and we have to overcome our own fears about what they might be. And there's this, this picture moment for us. Because the Lord, and, and point number three, if you're kicking notes this morning, is that the Lord knows your fears and doubts about, about following his directions. He knows. He, he knows Who's praying and where they're praying? He knows you and where you are. He knows your fears and your doubts. He knows. And yet he invites us to go and do and be his light in dark places all of the time. And oftentimes we, so we tell him all the reasons why it won't work. 
you know, as a pastor, it's a pretty common thing whenever you, you bring, a, bring a thing to, to people and you encourage them to do a thing where you oftentimes get a retort. Well, let me tell you why that won't work. And I'm always like, let's see. Let's chase it down. Let's go try again. Yeah, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna tell you, tell you a story, okay? Because most people in this room, when you were born, and the first time somebody ever invited you into a kitchen to cook, you just thought, hey, I know everything there is to know about cooking, and I'm gonna do a great job at this, and you went out and you made the perfect meal, right? Nobody in here ever burned a, a dish, did you? I mean, nobody in here ever boiled a pot of water dry? Or, or burned a grilled cheese sandwich or, or made scrambled eggs that are inedible. Nobody here ever did that, right? You were all perfect from go. Did you stop eating? No, you were like, I got to try again because I'm hungry. Your, your need to be filled was more important than your desire to, to, to give up because you, you didn't do it right. Some of you gave up and found somebody else that could cook, right? And all the men said, Amen. I mean, there were some guys a couple of weeks ago that were like, Brother Ben, I don't know how to cook French toast. I was like, don't worry, we're going to take care of you. And for the most part, it's really amazing. I didn't cook any French toast. I cooked zero French toast on Mother's Day, but man, the French toast got cooked, amen? And now some of these guys are like, now I have to do it every Sunday. There's a picture here that we see this model is, is that you and I understand that we have fears and doubts and sometimes we're not good at something and when people bring to me as a pastor and they say, I'll tell you why it won't work. I was like, let's try again. This time with a little more butter. And they're like, a little more butter? I'm like, yep, that's how the grilled cheese doesn't get burned. You know? And it's amazing how just sometimes a small tweak will make a thing go. Or our belief in it. Or our persistence at the matter are all important things. One of the things that I have learned in life, and that is, is that oftentimes one of the greatest mistakes the churches makes is they're not very persistent at matters. Something doesn't go well and they quit. Or if we were all hungry and we decided that we weren't good at cooking, that we would all starve to death, wouldn't we? Or we'd be broke from buying from somebody that could cook. But the truth is, is that we learn how to cook at home even if it's not good and we learn how to make it edible so that we can survive, don't we? There's enough evidence here to prove I'm right. We're all still here. Well, verse number 15, we see the, the, the picture here unfolding of this, this, this immense amount of doubt. It says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is cho a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And at this moment, you know, remind you that in the airport was that lady, and she's like, I have my bag of cookies. Why is he eating them? But then all of a sudden she realized, that's not my bag of cookies, right? And there's a moment here where, where God is saying, he's a chosen vessel of mine. And Ananias is like, God must have a plan. Jesus is orchestrating a beautiful plan. And that's point number four. Jesus has a plan. Do you believe that this morning, church? And I would love for you to look at your neighbor and say, Jesus has a plan. He does. He has a plan for your life and my life. He has a plan for all the lives that are present. Jesus has a plan. If he didn't have a plan, we'd be in trouble. You know, in the history of all of mankind, 
He was never stumped on what was going to happen next. We might be confused, but he's not. That's pretty exciting. For those of us who follow Jesus, that's exciting. Amen? We follow the guy that has a plan. Takes some of the burden off of you, doesn't it? We see the picture here unfolding. Then he talks about, he talks about Saul, and he, he, he speaks this powerful picture of him. Well, Jeff Pierce was a, a cyclist, and he was actually a pretty great cyclist, so much so that he actually won one of the stages of the Tour de France some years ago. But he was tasked with riding a piece, a bicycler's guide. And so what does he do? He, he buys himself a very nice bicycle, or, or at least he has one. It's worth about $2,500 in 1994, which is probably worth quite a bit more today. And he's going to ride all over downtown New York, New York City. He is riding around. But he's nervous because this is a very nice bike, and he has to get off of it sometimes to go do this thing or that thing. And so what does he do? He takes and he spray paints it, and he tapes it, and he makes it look kind of ratty. It is a perfectly fine bike, and there's nothing wrong with it. But he's disguised it because he's concerned that it might get stolen. Nobody stole his bicycle because nobody could see the value of it beyond what it looked like. God is looking at Saul and he sees the value of what he's worth and he understands what he will be. He will be a witness in a vessel. He'll be, he'll be able to reach kings and he'll be able to get into, into the lives of the Gentiles and he'll be able to go. And there's many things that he'll suffer as a result. And there's this beautiful picture of who he is. Aren't you glad that our king, he can see our value even when we can't? Man. You know, verse for verse, Saul will be named Paul when his name is transformed here in the upcoming verses and chapters. We see him, and he lives this powerful life, this testimony of God in his life. And in doing so, he writes letter after letter to church after church, and he becomes, he becomes one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament. If Ananias had just gone with his gut instinct, we would have had a much different story. But Ananias is obedient, isn't he? Well, what comes next is where I want to spend a few minutes, and I, I really, I know that I've got a lot left to real estate to cover, and I'll move through the end of it pretty quickly, but verse 17, it says, And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with your Holy Spirit. Or excuse me with the Holy Spirit. I said, you're, that, that's messed up. There's a picture here that I, I, I want you to see. A couple of things that just, just leapt off the page to me as I began to look at this. He identifies him as Brother Saul. Immediately sees him as part of the family. Why? Because Jesus has said it. And if Jesus says it, it's good enough for us. It ought to be, Amen. Be convinced of that when you look around your own neighborhood, in your own, in your own house, in your own community, when you see the people that are rough and they're hard and they're, they're, they're lost and they're, they're in the world. Look at them and realize that what Jesus says about them is the truth, regardless of what they think of themselves, regardless of what others think of them. Judge them and love them for who they are based on Jesus. But then he says something. I mean, the scriptures just unfold here, and it's something that has rattled me. 
he tells him that Jesus appeared to him, and he tells him all this stuff, but he says that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Man, and this messed me up. The more I looked at it, it bothered me. I don't believe that I have the power to put the Holy Spirit in anyone else. Do you? I don't think that's in us to do. And I thought, okay. But there is a measure of obedience in this picture here where these things are working together. But what bothered me was more that imagine, imagine the outcome. If we're supposed to be working together with God in the measure of some people's lives and we refrain, we hold back. How that Holy Spirit is aching to get into the lives of others. And we're the reason that it's not because we're not being obedient. And then I became convicted and galled, you know, just rubbed because I'm like, man, how many people need to hear about this story that because I have a bias in my heart or a, or a, a lack of want and desire, how many people are missing this? And then I think to myself, if that's true in all of our lives, then we are in trouble. Because it's clear to me that Ananias plays a very important role. Verse 18 says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. I mean, this testimony of being completely in love with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and following his Savior that we talk about so vibrantly in baptism. Immediately he becomes part of the family. And then it goes on to say, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And I rested here for a little while in my, in my consideration of this, these texts. He was headed to Damascus to do what? To gather up the believers, to, to, to shackle them and bring them back and have them tried and have them accused of, of wrongdoing before the high priest. He, he had authority to do this, and that's where he was headed. But instead, because God had a plan, he goes there, and he becomes part of the fellowship of believers, and he sits there in harmony with these people. And there is this transformation that is taking hold. You see, all throughout the houses and the community that we live in, there's any number of, of sinful behaviors or wicked things that could be, could be perpetrated over the course of the next several months, weeks, and years, right? But, but just imagine if God would sweep into those houses, how those houses would be changed, and they would go from doing a wicked or sinful thing to, going, to doing a righteous thing. And that's the story in Damascus. Saul was bringing the heat, and instead he is just part of their number. You know, Years ago, I went on a trip, and, and we ended up in, in Sarajevo, Bosnia. And some of you vaguely remember where Sarajevo is because there was an Olympics there so many years ago. But you also remember there just happened to be a pretty big war there. And in the war there, that place is destroyed. And so we started doing some humanitarian aid. That's what it looks like on our, on our visas and passports, and, and that's what we did. We would go, and we would do humanitarian efforts. We would take food in refugee camps, and we also worked with one church. There was one church that we knew of that was working there, 98% Muslim. And during our time there, we would worship with this church, and we would come into this church, 
and the sanctuary was, was every room for them for the most part. They had you know, some classrooms and some other things because they were built into what was at one point a residence of some kind. And on the top floor, they would rearrange the space with chairs for church. And they began to sing. And during the worship service, somebody threw wide these, these windows open. And because it's kind of a mountainous terrain, you're looking down into the valley, and before you, it opens up the, the sky's scene, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely captivating. And the worship that's pouring out of there is songs that I'm familiar with, but I don't, I don't speak the language, so I'm kind of trying to cobble together the best way. And, of course, they've given us the words, and so we're just muddling through this, you know, this Cyrillic kind of feeling language, and we're just, we're just having a hard time. And then somebody tells us after church, they say, you know, that was such a beautiful view, isn't it? Yeah. So these praises kind of going forth and, and proceeding out into the community, this praise of Jesus is happening in the midst of all this Muslim activity. He says, you know what used to be here? I'm like, no. He's like, this was a sniper's nest during the war. And they used to perch here and they used to shoot down into the city and they would kill civilians or others that were in opposition to the soldiers. The opposing army nested here. And God has transformed that place of death to this place of life. And that is the whole story of the scriptures. That is the whole story of Jesus taking what was meant for death and turning it into life. And when he is in Damascus with the disciples, it is a story of transformation. So much transformation that when we get to the end of the reading, you see the evidence of it. It says, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Point number five in your bulletin says transformation is the proof. See, we live it out when we follow Jesus and we prove that he is the Christ. People will say, prove it to me. We prove it when we follow and obey his scriptures in such a way that people know that we are different. We prove it when we adhere to every single thing that it says in here, even when we don't want to or don't like it. When we look into people's lives beyond their sin and we invite them to be part of the family, we prove it. We prove it when we gather and we sing. We sing the praises of a transforming Savior into the community in such a way that, that it, it, it scrapes right over the tops of the hills and runs down the highways as we leave here. And the praise carries with us in such a way that others can hear us. And they're watching. Now whose who's soul is out there that's waiting for the Ananias that is you to just say yes to Jesus, here I am, Lord and run out to their house and lay your hands upon them and pray for them and see them become part of the family and watch their life change. That's who we should be if we follow Jesus. But you might be here this morning and you might be that very Saul. You might be saying, I don't know why I'm even here this morning, but I needed to hear this and know that we would welcome you quickly and gladly into this family because we believe that what was meant for death can be life. And we believe that it is for every single person regardless of their past. Stand with me today. Would you bow your heads? 
Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to be here. Lord, to look to Scripture and be challenged by it. To realize that all the while we think one thing about somebody, but you're thinking something completely different. I ask, Lord, this morning that we would look at the heart of each and every one of our neighbors, our friends, our relatives, every single person, and we'd see what you see. And when we bring our fears and doubts, Lord, you'd take them from us and you'd give us your plan instead. And you'd say, just obey me. I pray, Lord, that if there's conviction in this room because of what has been shared this morning, that we would give it to you and say, we want to repent and turn away from this type of thinking where we put our fears and doubts in front of our obedience. But Lord, in this room, we also ask for this. We ask for every single Saul that's in our midst, that's in your eyes, that you see that we don't see or that we've chosen to ignore. We ask you for them, that we would be about them. Lord, and if they're present with us this morning, that they would know that we want to be about them. Lord, that you might transform the world because we look past, knowing that you would save a person that would change the world in spite of the spray paint and duct tape that's holding them together. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Got Brandon here this morning and Boyd's at the back. If you want to come and talk to me, I'm here available as well. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean and we're singing how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall Oh 
song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. It's good to be in God's house. Amen. I'm going to ask you to have a seat.